a word of prayer as we remain standing. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Welcome to Christ the King. Please be seated. It may be helpful for you to have the preaching passage open. That'll be on page 760 of the Pew Bible. We'll spend most of the time in the passage that was read, but I'll touch very briefly on uh, before and after of that passage. This sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. In this lengthy sermon, Jesus explains God's law and gives God's law to his people. He does so from a mountainside. This is not the first time a significant biblical figure has from a mountainside explained God's law. Uh, Moses did that, oh, a couple of thousand years prior to Jesus from the Mount Sinai. He delivered the Ten Commandments. Throughout the reading, you heard this phrase, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. Where did they hear it said before? They heard it said by Moses from the Ten Commandments. So in this passage, I'm going to make three points. From this passage, I'll make three points. We're going to look at Jesus, the teacher of the law. One of the anticipations of the Messiah was that he would be a prophet like Moses, that he would further explain and deepen and clarify God's law. And Jesus does just that. Jesus, the teacher of the law. Second, Jesus, the fulfillment of what he taught. Third, Jesus, the light of the world. Let's jump right in. Let's see what Jesus taught. I'm going to clump these in sets of two. In the first set of two, you have heard it said, Jesus deepens God's law. You have heard it said, do not murder, I say, do not be angry, resolve your relationships. You have heard it said, do not lust, or excuse me, do not commit adultery, I say to you, do not lust. We all can understand this. He's taking an external prohibition and applying it to the heart. First thing Jesus does as he expands and explains God's law is he deepens it. It's no good to simply check the box on the externals. Nope, no anger, no lust, which lead to murder, which lead to adultery. First thing. Second thing, he clarifies God's law. I'm going to touch on divorce and oaths. Just a little bit of explanation. This from verse 31. It is said, whoever divorces his wife, let him supply a certificate certificate." of divorce. Now this requires a little bit of explanation. There were some allowances, I believe, in, for divorce in the Old Testament. That is a broad, big subject. I'm happy to speak with you after service if that piques your curiosity. And there is further evidence in this patriarchal society, and that was a very patriarchal society then, that men were taking advantage of these allowances. For instance, there is laws on the books from that Jesus day allowing a man to divorce his wife if she spoiled the dinner. So ladies, be very careful of how you cook. Right? The implications could be significant. My point is that men were abusing the system. They were taking advantage of finding this one loophole and really forcing any sort of explanation and reason into some very limited exceptions. Jesus clarifies, nope, aside from the most egregious of faults, the most significant of sins, marriage is a lifelong commitment. Same thing with oaths. Jesus removes a loophole. You have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, do not swear by heaven or by earth or Jerusalem, etc., etc. What's going on? An example from childhood. When I was a kid, uh, we would make promises. And our obligation to keep that promise was based upon the value of the thing we promised on. I swear I'll be there. 
I pinky swear I'll be there. I swear on my mother's grave that I'm going to be there. My mom was still alive and well and is still alive and well. Nonetheless, you'd swear on her or swear on something important because, you know, I promised, but I didn't pinky promise. I promised, but I didn't swear. Therefore, I don't. Jesus says, you're, you're just finding loopholes. Cut it out. Let your yes simply be yes. Your no simply be no. And so the second thing Jesus does is he clarifies God's commandment and he removes loopholes. He prohibits these mental gymnastics that allow people to really do whatever the heck they want, justify whatever behavior they want, bend the truth in whichever way they want. Third, and this is not in your passage, but the, very, the verses following, the same pattern continues. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus addresses some very, these are some very well-known words from Jesus. Jesus said, uh, you have heard it said, uh, repay an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not retaliate bad with good, but retaliate, excuse me, right? do not retaliate bad with equal bad, but retaliate bad with good. So turn the other cheek. Someone strikes you on one cheek, you turn it off of the other. Someone asks you to walk one mile, you go the extra mile. It's an expansion. No longer are we simply, our retaliation is limited. No, but we're to repay bad actions with generosity and grace. The final prohibition from this section of the Sermon on the Mount is very similar. You have heard it said, love your neighbors. Jesus says, let me expand that. Not only love those who love you, Love those who don't. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So let me summarize. Jesus, the teacher of the law, deepens God's commandments. It's no good just to check the externals. He clarifies God's commandments. Stop the loopholes in your commitment, marriage. Stop the loopholes in your truth-telling, simply yes or no. Third and final, he expands. Love your enemies. Repay bad with good. Right? Jesus' standard of righteousness is hard. Really hard. His standards of righteousness are high. They are nosebleed high. But my hunch is that his standards of righteousness are no surprise. Further, I suggest that you know it. There's no surprises in this. You know what a good life looks like. And you know that anger is not good for you. You know that I know that holding onto a grudge, unresolved conflict, it just eats you up from the inside out. You've probably read the self-help books. You and I know moving on from anger to lust. You and I know lust is no good. The advice you can look but don't touch, that's terrible advice. That was, by the way, advice that was given to me by an authority figure when I was growing up, and it was bad then. And it's certainly bad now when the internet is so prolific and you, you can look anywhere at any time. It's okay. The, the best argument against lust was given to me by a Sunday school teacher. And he said, it's okay to live in a fantasy world when you're a little boy or a little kid. But when you become a grown person, it's time to put a fantasy world behind you. And it's time to start interacting with real people, relationships with real people, and lust turns other people into an object of our fantasy. It's like living in a make-believe world. That's okay if you're five. Fantasy worlds aren't okay if you're 35. At best, lust is simply childish, juvenile, a fantasy world. 
at our best, we know that marriage is, is a lifetime commitment. There's no fairy tale. There's no romance that begins uh, with exception clauses. Hey, cook every meal must be just so, or you're no. No, no marriage begins in fairy tale. Romance begins with prenuptial agreements. No, we know it. Marriage, at its best, is a lifetime commitment. We know that at our best, our speaking should be clear. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. I've heard it said we tend to drown our insecurities with a, with a vomit of words. I'm guilty. You're probably guilty. And when I do it, I think, geesh, I wish I could simply say yes. No. Candor, you know it. I'm not Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his standards of righteousness, they are tough, but it's nothing that you don't know. Our problem is that we don't, it's not that we don't know what's right. Our problem is we just can't do it. Our, our problem is not like, oh, oh, thank you, Jesus, for deepening the law. I didn't know anger was bad for me. I didn't know lust was harmful. Your problem is you just can't do it. Trying to tell someone who's angry to stop being angry is like telling an insecure person to just act natural. What's the good news? What's the good news in this passage? Well, I think you got to back up when Jesus begins this. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus begins by saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I've come not to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And he fulfills the law by doing what we've just seen, expanding it and deepening it and clarifying it. But most of all, you know how he fulfills the law? He does it. Jesus lived without anger. Jesus didn't hold a grudge. On the cross... He forgave those who put him there. Jesus spoke with candor. His yes was always yes, his no was always no. Before his crucifixion, he was put on trial. His accusers had a hard time pinning anything on him. And so they gave him enough rope to hang himself. They said, ask Jesus, do you say that you are the Christ? And if there was an ever an occasion for a mealy-mouthed response, that was it. Yeah, yeah, I said I was the Christ, but you know. His yes was yes, and his no was no. And for each of these categories that we've seen, anger, lust, commitment, candor, retaliation, love for enemies, Jesus does it, and he does it perfectly. What is the good news of our faith? Our good news of our faith is not here. Let me explain the requirements for a good and right life. Helpful. The good news of our faith is not, you can do better. Helpful, maybe. The good news of our faith is that there is someone righteous. And through faith in him, you and I are counted as righteous. Article 12, this is in your sermon notes, of, of your, in the back of your service leaflet. The, art, the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's righteous requirements. And that you and I are counted righteous on through faith in him, not through any doing of your own. You and I have a righteousness that does not belong to you. We're not just prisoners who have been freed. We're sons and daughters that have been received into the family. We haven't just had our dirty clothes taken off, but we've been given new robes. 
Our past is just not accounted for, but our future is secure. Why? How? Because there is someone righteous. There is someone who not only explains the law, but does the law. And his righteousness is credited to you through faith in him. This, according to Martin Luther, is the doctrine upon which the church rises or falls. Why do you think a shallow view of the law is attractive? I didn't murder anybody. I didn't commit adultery. Sure, I've lived with a grudge my entire life, but no murder, check. Why do you think loopholes? You think they're just guilty of loopholes? Oh, no. I'm a great loophole. Why are loopholes attractive? Why is it attractive to limit our response of grace? I can like those who like me. Why? Because we all want to justify ourselves. And when Jesus clarifies and deepens and expands God's righteous commandments, which you know to be right, we have two responses. Number one, you can spend a whole heck of a lot of time justifying yourself. Number two, you can trust in a righteousness that is not yours. A righteousness received by faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law he taught. Third and final, Jesus, the light of life. Now, I do think our first response to this sermon, this first response to the nosebleed high righteous requirements of God is simply no way. But I think that no way should quickly be followed by an I wish. I wish that were true. This sermon series is called, is titled Jesus, the Light of Life, because Jesus reveals the nature of our calling. He reveals our dignity. He reveals our worth. He shows us what a good life is, and he does so in this sermon. You know it. A good life is not riddled with anger. It's not riddled with lust. It's not riddled. This is what the good life looks like, and you and I should think, gosh, I want, I want that. Having quoted one Martin Luther, I'll conclude with another Martin Luther. In his Christmas sermon in 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. said on this very passage, the passage about non-retaliation, he said, a third reason why you should love your enemies is that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And one of the reasons that our nation honors him tomorrow is because he did that. Perfectly? Nope. Approximately? More so than most. And as we consider Jesus' expansion, his clarification, and his deepening of God's law, I hope we all feel a little bit of a spark. I want that. Our closing hymn will be, I want to walk as a child of light. And Christians have their wants pointed in a particular direction. Are you going to ever get what you want this side of eternity? Nope. Nonetheless, it is good to want. I want to walk as a child of the light. And as I walk as a child of the light and follow him, I want to hold my grudges a little less tightly. I want to walk as a child of the light. And I want to indulge my fantasies a little less readily. 
I want to walk as a child of the light, and as I do, I want to hold my words and commitments with a little more integrity. I want to walk as a child of the light, and as I do so, be more generous and gracious in my response, to not only to those who like me, but those who don't. Jesus, he is the teacher of the law. He is the fulfillment of what he taught. Jesus is the light of our life.